Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to No Limits, a Mitrap podcast. So how you doing this week, Mike? I'm doing good. It's a little later than usual. You know, we're recording at night, so we'll see how that goes. Hopefully I won't nod off on you as I finish my fat tire here, fat tire amber ale. How about you? What are you up to? Nice. I'm um, doing good. We had a nice 4th of July weekend up in the Adirondacks, went on a lake, went on a boat. Um, how'd you spend your 4th of July? We just did a barbecue here, went to the in-laws. It was nice. The weather held up, so, you know, we were outside. Yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. It was a different 4th of July, but it was, you know, still nice to be with people. Barbecues almost felt like some sense of normal, even though the chairs were spread out six <laughs> feet apart, but... uh a barbecue on the 4th of July, there's, there's got to be something normal. And we did hot dogs. We yeah, had hot dogs. dogs. We had burgers. Got to have hot so, dogs. Yeah, we had the charcoal grill going. It, a little bit of normalcy felt pretty good. Hot dogs, beer, and some illegal fireworks, and then it's 4th of July. You know what else made this week special? What what, what happened? <laughs> we launched our Patreon page. Yay! We have, we have two awesome supporters of the show who have become our official patrons. So a shout out to our agent, Julie S. at Evil Rap Lady, and at the special agent level, Jeff Plummer at J.E. Plume at, on Twitter. Nice. They are, they're awesome. They've been um, listeners from the beginning. They've been active on Twitter, and both of them have an incredible collection of memorabilia. I don't know how else to put it, of just rap and thrillers in general books, crafts, uh, everything you can imagine. Bookmarks, mugs, stickers. I know Jeff is even displaying two of our No Limits custom stickers on his bookshelf. Uh, oh, nice. As that a was that guy? Nice. Yeah, awesome. that was him. Yep, nice, that crazy Jeff. bookshelf. I think he said he has another 3,000 books in storage even. So, yeah, he's uh, he's serious, and we're glad to have him supporting the show as a patron. And awesome. at the end, we'll share some information about how how others can join up as uh, patrons as well and help support the podcast. Cool. Yeah. So thank you guys for making this episode possible. Yes. So Chris, what content are we covering in the bonus episode today? Thinking about the consequences of choosing the third option, you know, not political not military, but that third option involving the CIA and clandestine operations. Right. And so, we wanted to sort of pick a topic that we could talk about in our bonus option, bonus episode, sorry, that uh, focused on that. And so in the book, we see these three main perspectives of the third option. We see we have the CIA and its leadership with uh, Stansfield and Kennedy. We have operators on the ground, um, main one being Mitch Rapp. And then we also have the politicians in mainly Hank Clark, who is... You know, big bad, the masterminding, the political spin, and the fallout, or everything. And so, in order to do a little further deep dive into the third option and you know the the CIA, we wanted, and especially because this is the the last book that we're going to really see Thomas Stansfield, and he is the ultimate spy master. You know, there was this documentary that came out, um, produced by Showtime, that focuses on all at the time all the living spy masters, as well as some other higher level CIA players. And it's called 
Spy Masters, CIA in the Crosshairs, and it explores the inner workings of the CIA, you know, starting from sort of the time right before 9-11, leading up into the current time, discussing, you know, the various uh, things that go on, sort of the inner workings of what a director of intelligence would do. And so this is a film by Chris Whipple, and he states that what he wanted to do with this was it didn't want it just to be about spies or covert actions, but he wanted it to be about the 12, these 12 human beings, like these living people who represent what the CIA is. And I really think it, it does capture that. And you do see these differing uh, opinions. You know, these are humans. They, they don't all, they're not just machines. They, they have opinions. They have different ideas. And it was interesting to see, you know, what a real life spy master thinks about, in, in today's world, in, in the real world. And I think, like you mentioned, this is a great tribute to Thomas Stansfield, who in this book we see in decline with uh, the diagnosis of cancer. And as we know, in the next book in the series, Separation of Power, uh, Kennedy's going to be in charge, and we actually have to deal with Stansfield's passing. And so I think that the filmmaker of this documentary wanted to touch on hot button issues in America and the CIA and the war on terrorism. But he more importantly wanted to, or not more importantly, but he, in the film, he wanted the focus to be on the people who served in the leadership capacity through that era. And so he goes back multiple presidential administrations and talks to, at the time, the 12 living human beings who served as director of central intelligence or DCI and, we want to make, and he wanted to make the film about them, and we wanted to uh, make this episode a tribute to Thomas Stansfield. So it was a great film to see the real world people who were the Thomas Stansfields, yeah. you know, during this this time of the war on terror. And we saw this really impactful scene at the end of Third Option, which, you know, as we know, reading the next book in the series, uh, is the last time where Mitch is really going to be on the page with Thomas Stansfield. And he is just telling him, what an honor. You are one of the most courageous individuals I've ever known in my whole life. And it means more to Mitch than anything in the world to have Thomas Stansfield, you know, this legend, say that about you. And so to actually see real people who, who have been the leaders of real operators in the field, you know, hopefully these people presented in the film are, are the real human leaders that are that to the real Mitch Raps of the world. Yeah, so today we, we hope to just, you know, we're going to talk about a couple of the key topics we, we sort of gained from this documentary, as well as tie, hopefully tie it into, you know, the Mitrap series. You know, this is a Mitrap podcast. Yeah, and I think it's important to, you know, we read these books, we think, I love these books, I love this genre, but, you know, it is fiction, but <laughs> there are real life people who do this kind of stuff, and it's it's important to think about that and to take a step outside of our books and uh, to see it in like a, a real life perspective. I think that's a, that's a big question that the film definitely deals with in the end is how far should America go to keep us safe? Yeah. And we're going to get into four specific topics that are covered in the documentary and four topics that also have these strong connections to the world of rap and uh, the books. So um, what was your first thought on the documentary? I, I'm, I was a little 
I was shocked. It was it was heavy. Did did you feel the same way? I was just assuming I was going to learn more about like how the CIA works, but this was I would concur that you don't. Yes, you do get a slight glimpse into the inner workings of the CIA, but you don't really actually. You know, all that stuff is classified, so we're never going to really find out what actually goes on. But it, it was nice to see and hear candidly from these directors, and I feel like most of them spoke their their minds and, and the truth but yeah it was definitely an intense documentary for me and, and as I said I, I think it was an interesting light to look at like the real life context of the genre that we often read to, to get like the real life perspective of that yeah it was less the inner workings of the CIA as a whole and more inside the hearts and minds of the people who pull the strings who make the decisions, who make the tough decisions. And it was almost the inner workings of the conscious of people who have to spend their life dealing with the things, not that they've done, but what they've authorized others to do Yeah, and the consequences of that. And so it was really the inner workings of the mind more so than the CIA as organization, if you will. But um, yeah, some of the footage is heavy. Oh yeah. They, they use a lot of, a lot of like, I wasn't expecting like, you know, you know the, hostages, executions, yeah. um, you know, attacks where we're dropping the bombs and you see you see the aftermath of it. It's important though, right? Like Yeah. I I was surprised by that, but I'm I, in the end I'm glad it's there. It's you know, it's important for the American people, for us, you know, civilians to be reminded and exposed to, right? Like what the people on the ground are going through and the people calling the shots are going through. And so, I mean, it's just, it's the gruesome story of the reality that face our military and clandestine personnel, you know, regularly. And so as heavy as it was, uh, I think it's important, right? It's an important documentary to get out there. Well, let's get into these individuals, right? So, um, and by the way, for listeners, we have a poster up on our website, advertising the film but also i put together this poster so you can see the names and faces of who we're talking about i'm sure a lot of you remember a lot of these people but it gives you a nice overview of all of the individuals profiled in the film so you can find that at mitchrappod.com on our website we'll also post it on our twitter account so you can definitely see at mitchrappod.com the faces that we'll be talking about so out of all the people highlighted chris we have the DCIs, the directors of Central Intelligence. We have other counterterrorism experts in the field. Who stood out to you? Who was somebody that you felt was a strong personality and fit that job well? I, out of all like the DCIs, I, I think I, I liked Hayden and Tenet the best. Hayden seemed to be more calculated, less of a, a strong man, whereas Tenet is a New Yorker. He has that tough guy, New Yorker attitude. But I felt like both of them wanted to get the job done. They they saw, you know, what needed to be done. Actually, the people I liked the most were actually not the DCIs. It, it was Jose Rodriguez and and Cover Black and Gina Bennett. And I think that's like probably the people most people are going to like more. You know the because like you, I guess you like Irene Kennedy in these early books because she's not in charge, and we we like her in down the future because she's a little bit different of a director. But it's like the Mike Nashes of, of, of the, the world or it's, you know, the Mitch Raps of the world, you know, like the people who are under 
not having to make the decisions that can actually get some stuff done because they're not politically bogged down. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you on three of those names. As DCI, I thought Michael Hayden in the film was the strongest in the sense of being most reasonable in his in his arguments. He was very matter of fact. He actually was what I w- thought of as a spy master in terms of your emotions not getting to you, where some of the others in the film, they became emotional to some of the questions. Oh, definitely, definitely. E- even, and not just emotional in a like a reflective or somber way, but they got emotional in sort of a defensive way. And to me, that was a little unbecoming of what I expected of someone in this, in this position. So I thought Michael Hayden, uh, he was very matter of fact, and he set up each of the issues like we were talking about. He would lay out the dilemma very clearly and succinctly, right? He would show you both sides, why this is a good action to take, but why this might have some downsides. And he didn't present it as a straw man, right? Where he'd make one side the obvious right answer, and he'd give you a really cheap excuse on the other side and write it off. I thought Tenet, he almost didn't take serious anybody who might propose a counter-argument. He almost wrote them off, and, and maybe that was kind of the thinking that after 9-11 put us down a, a slightly dangerous path, you know, that we, we went too far in some regards, as the movie's going to bring up. The other two uh, that I liked, like you mentioned, were not DCI's. Um, Kofor Black, he was the coordinator of counterterrorism in the post-9-11 aftermath, and he didn't hold back. He he let it ride. There was that one scene where he he went off. He literally said how pissed he was that the politicians weren't getting the message. And to me, that's the clearest connection to these books, right? How even in transfer of power, rap goes off in the meeting on the attorney general. Oh yeah, yeah. Saying she attorney general Tutwiler. Now she was just a a Dumbo who didn't get it and deal with this yet. She was playing the political academic game. Kofor black did that here. He said, I came out of a meeting with, you know, Condoleezza rice and other officials in the Bush administration. And I thought they finally listened to me that the intelligence we have shows an imminent attack attack. And this was July, 2001. And he was so pissed saying that they did nothing. Yeah. The, uh, the, the interviewer even says, Oh, so what did they do after that meeting? And he was just like, they did nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yep. Jose Rodriguez was another one. Again, not DCI, but Director of National Clandestine Service from 2004 to 2007. And I liked how he was standing up for his guys. Yeah. He was defensive to defend his men and what they did. And he said he was always there for his people. He had their backs. You could tell, right? People who worked for him were going to like him. You could tell that if Rap had to take answers from Jose Rodriguez, he would have been fine with it. Yeah. Like he was one of those guys that Rap would have known was not playing the political doublespeak, but who would have had his backs. And so I think Rap and a Kennedy would have relied on. I, I think if Jose Rodriguez were a character on Kennedy's staff and was given a lot of leverage in running Rap. That I would have been fine with that, the way he was speaking, and he was so defensive in a way of sticking up for his operators. Yeah, like the the whole scene where he's asked about the tapes that he destroyed. It was the two waterboarding incidents, and he goes, we had tapes of it, and it led to direct intelligence that helped us. I think it was uh, the, the intelligence that helped us get Bin Laden. Right. It led to the courier eventually, yeah. and he was saying – 
I defended that at the time because it was the right guys. call. And I deleted those – I burned those tapes actually. He gave the order to destroy them to say, I know the operators will get crucified by the politicians. And yeah. he he said, "I yeah, I burned those tapes. Take me in front of a grand jury. Take me in front of a whatever. I don't care because I burned those because I know my operators would have paid the penalty instead of you know one of us. Yeah, I, I thought that was great. And he wanted to conceal their identity. So he was – he was really strong. In it. Could you see him working for a Kennedy? Oh, yeah. I, I thought that this is a question maybe we're going to cover in a little bit. But, you know, you asked me sort of out of all the uh, living DCIs, up until recently, we didn't have a female DCI, which now we do, who was most like Kennedy. And I thought that he was the most like Kennedy. She sticks up for a guy. She would, she would have done that, that situation. Yeah. So, You know, on that question... I agree with you, but who who to you was a Stansfield out of these living spy masters who directed the CIA? Who to you was was the best fit for a real life Stansfield? Uh, that's a tough question. Yeah, maybe maybe in looks, but also in how they conducted themselves. Like who looks like a Stansfield to you, but then who also conducted themselves like a Stansfield? Um, probably Robert Gates. Who would you pick? Or or William Webster, yeah, those two are good. Or James Woodley. Do you think Stansfield's bald? I, I forget like how uh, he's described in the books. Yeah, I forget how he's described too. But the one that's giving me the most Stansfield look is a William Webster. Yeah, no, I agree with that. He was a director from 1987 to 91, as well as FBI director. He has that tough guy look. He looks like he can conceal anything behind those wrinkles and those glasses. But he also he also looks smart. You know the way Stansfield collects information and they say he's the best intelligence mind in the world in terms of how much knowledge he has. True. In terms of like who I think is most like Stansfield. So a lot of like the older DCIs, this is something we'll we'll talk about more extensively later, but a lot of the older DCIs seem to not like this whole transition into drone warfare and sort of getting away from clandestine services, human intelligence gathering. Um, so I think like anytime that was brought up, obviously there, that mindset is heavily drawn into Thomas Stansfield's, you know, psyche being, you know, cold war behind the German line, behind the Russian, you know, the iron curtain spycraft. As like an entire person, I'd have to say like Michael Hayden is probably embodies him. You know, if you add him along with like a lot of the older guys' thoughts, I think that that's a good combination to to like get what an actual Stansfield is. Because I think Thomas has, he's just a really a spy spy. You know, he he is he is the definition of a spy. He's different than Rap, right? Rap is like, I, I feel like. Stansfield is more of a spy than Rap ever could be. Hmm. But do you think, do you think Stansfield, when he was behind the Iron Curtain, right? Like, when let's say when he's operating in the '60s and '70s Eastern Europe, do you think he was like Rap? Rap was like him back then, or you still think he was a different operator when he was at the height of his his game? That's a good question. That'd be a great spinoff. I feel like he was more like a, the way Michael Hayden was very, very process oriented and thinking things through was his advantage. So I don't think Stansfield in the field would have reminded me much of rap at all. Yeah. Now, Hurley. Hurley, on the other hand. Yeah, is no, the Hurley's one. more rap. 
yeah. he's the one who's going to give us rap, out, you know, of an older generation. Well, that's like Stansfield is like an older Kennedy and Hurley is an exactly. older rap, so. Yep, yep. But however, uh, there was one who I didn't agree with and I didn't think could make those calls. Michael Morell, director, acting director, I think, in the early 2010s, uh, yep. briefly under Obama. He played a big role in this movie. And I think even though he served such a short interim or acting term, I think the the producers highlighted him or gave him a lot of screen time on it because he was that counter opinion. He was that counter voice. Uh, he seemed more of an academic, you know, where we had Tenet just kind of flying by the seat of his pants telling us we had to do this. We had to do that. You didn't know what it was like. You didn't know how bad it was. You had Morell more this academic kind of saying. He was very soft, right? He almost had political speak answers of, we have to look at the human rights issues, which sure, I agree. But I don't think it would have allowed him to take the intelligence in the moment and make the call because he would have been hung up on these wider philosophical questions. And I don't know if that's a Stansfield or a Kennedy in how he how he was approaching these things or philosophizing about them. He wasn't on the ground enough. You know, he, he his head, what I feel like when push came to shove, wouldn't have been in the game enough. It's interesting. I don't know how you felt about him out of. Yeah, I don't know. He was definitely like the the point that was sort of counter to a lot of other people. He definitely like spoke the it, it would have sounded the most like uh, political speak. What's interesting about him, right, is that he he's a career agency guy. He is in charge of the president's daily briefing, you know, for a long time, and he is the executive assistant to George Tenet and. He's the one who goes to President Bush and, and briefs him. That's why he's in Florida when 9-11 happens, because he's the, the CIA, like sort of, I guess, liaison with the White House. And he's, you know, he's like always the, the, the step down guy because he's been acting director twice. You know, I guess never the guy that should be in charge, but, you know, a guy that I guess you kind of want to have in the room to, to get his opinion. I think he, that, I'm glad you added that backstory because I think that's that's a better role for him. When I was thinking about him as the leader, as the Stansfield, I couldn't put it together. But if he's providing these reports or there to give more of the details, this kind of career behind the scenes, his persona would have fit that role then for me very well. Yeah, he's a good deputy director. You know, like a, you want that guy in like sort of the, you know, the, the second tier. All right. Well, you can see that poster of the different individuals from the film. Some we didn't we didn't get to or didn't mention. But uh, yeah, we have a lot of real life stance fields. So definitely check out this documentary and uh, see them in the flesh and hear from them. Yeah. All right. So the first topic that we want to get into is the cost of inaction and the power of politics. And we're going to read a few of the quotes because this film is about hearing in their own words what the people who served in the Thomas Stansfield and Irene Kennedy role say. And so we are going to read uh, in our discussion here some of the quotes. Let me start with John Brennan. I thought he had a very clear statement on how complicated and messy <laughs> this job can get. He says, quote, I wish the world were simpler. I wish we didn't have these complex challenges that we face, where there is not a right and wrong answer, where it's not black and white. 
And I think he's he's reminding us he was one of the voices of reason, if you will, throughout the movie, reminding us that it's not always a black and white world. And a lot of what we're doing is finding out how much latitude we have in the gray zone and ethically, morally and politically. What intelligence do we have a responsibility to present to the president? Because it's not black and white. So as we curate intelligence, they have to make the decision, give the final call. What role do we play in curating that when we're in this gray zone? You know, that, he says a couple of times, we're just trying to make space for politicians to act. A, a couple of people bring that up. Yeah, our, our role is to choose the, the correct, accurate intelligence that gets pushed up the, the ladder to, so that the politicians are the ones to make the right call. We're not solving the problems. We're not making the policy, but we're really providing the, the intelligence. And that's yeah. not always a black and white world. Yeah, Michael Hayden, he quotes, he says, the reality is the intelligence or direct action only buys you space. It rarely solves the problem on its own. And if, if the political leaders don't have the wherewithal or the courage or whatever it takes to use that space, you get into this loop where you kill people forever. And I, I thought that was great. Like that sums up what this is all about and how, yes, you can kill this guy, but without sort of instituting some policy, some plan, there's just going to be another guy that comes in and fills that, that void. And then you just end up in this constant, Oh, we need to kill, 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 kill. And it's something that we don't really get in the books, right? And so, obviously, that's just—it's a work of fiction, and, and that's how these things work. We don't, we don't, we don't have these overarching, and we, we don't look at like the policy of like how things are going. But it's interesting to think about, like, yes, Mitch is out there killing these guys; he's solving these problems that pop up. Do we ever see the presidents in in the the story, sort of taking action and trying to curb? you know, these things from happening again. Well, I guess that goes to the, the relationship between the DCI and the president. And so in this movie, we get some really positive, strong examples of that and some negative ones where the DCI feels not enough action was taken. And that's really clear in the books, right? Think of all the presidents we love. Well, what, what, what have we started to like about Hayes in these first few books is, he trusts and rely and appreciates the intelligence community behind him. He really is, I would say, a team player. I mean, think of the opening scene of Transfer of Power, the Farah Harut takedown. President Hayes in the sit room is very clear that I'm going to trust and lean on my my people and particularly my intelligence um, to make the right call here. Right. And think of all the other later decisions, right, in presidents. Um, I think with like President Alexander, who's the most recent president, I, I think we sort of get a very similar thing in how he he wants to do what's right. He he trusts Mitch. He trusts Kennedy. Yeah, he's been a, a an example of that. But look at the plot of Lethal Agent, right? The most recent book, which is actually the next one we're going to review on this podcast in August. And look at how the politics can play such a role in pretty much destroying the intelligence community where oh, yeah. Christ, Christine Barnett, give a spoiler here for Lethal Agent, 99.9% of you, I hope, have read it. Yeah. You know, to, total Power is coming out the month after. So, But look at how she's angling 
to not give a hoot about the intelligence community. She's actually rooting for a terrorist action. Yeah, her cost of inaction is a positive one, right? She she w- doesn't want them to catch Halabi, right? Uh, you know, it, yeah. It, it, the last thing she wants is to have Mitch on a TV screen, you know, yeah. putting Halabi successful. In, he's successful, right? You know, so she even, I mean, she's even her her campaign advisor, this uh, mastermind. I think his name was Gray in Lethal Agent is supposed to be one of the most ruthless, like, Machiavellian kind of politicos you can hire. And he's even afraid of her. So, yeah, it's kind of like she's actively rooting against the intelligence community. And can you imagine if Kyle Mills deals with someone like that as president in total power and beyond, who just actively roots against the intelligence community? Because we've had Alexander now for a little while, right? Um, yeah. And Alexander's been been great working with Kennedy. Yeah, I thought that uh, another quote that really sort of spoke to me was what um, Panetta said. And he says, if, you know, in talking about inaction, if we fail to do these things, um, God forbid this country faced another 9-11, you know what the first question would be is why the hell did you let this happen? Why the hell did you let this happen? And I think that we could, you know, we could talk about for a long time. But yet the first thing that the politicians or, or anyone is going to say when an attack happens is, again, where did you fail? You know, why did you let this happen? And it's almost like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It, you know, it, to the politician, the, the, the counterintelligence can't win. It's, it's like, it, it's very, it, it was very, uh, I don't know humbling to see the director say that out loud because this is what they're facing every day if they don't get this right it it falls on them and if they get it wrong it falls on them you know like it's it's a tough job to be in that question of responsibility and blame um, gina bennett says something important and she was the senior counterterrorism analyst highlighted on the bin laden unit going back decades ago, tracking bin Laden. And she talks about, you know, she says, if you are a terrorism analyst for long enough, you will have many moments where you will feel responsible. Responsible for not having stayed long enough, not having stayed late enough, not having thought hard enough, not having plowed through enough data to connect these proverbial dots. And you'll see on the other end, individuals who are hurt or killed. And so I think this film is really bringing out that emotional aspect of responsibility. And, you know, Panetta, I was a little surprised by how he carried himself in the interviews. He was he was always looking down. He had this kind of forlorn look. And, and maybe I don't I don't know it follow him enough, but maybe that's how he usually conducts himself. But he was the one who had this visceral reaction and this weight of the world on his shoulders, I thought, more than anyone else. Well, I mean, he had... The first time that CIA operatives had died in a long time, right? With the 2009 bombing at Camp Chapman. Yep. When you when you think about it, he's one of the ones that had one of the worst things that happened to the CIA in a long time, right? The suicide attack by Humam, you know, the 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 doctor who they think that they converted and he ends up being a you know suicide killer and, and kills a 
couple CIA operatives, a couple military men. You know, that was intense for him, I'm sure. And uh, have you seen Zero Dark Thirty? Yep. yep. That's a that's an intense scene. And yep, the mistakes that were made and how he that level of responsibility. And Gina Bennett, who we mentioned, talks about that because her friend uh, was the one killed in the attack. And yeah, so both her and Panetta really have this sense of responsibility and guilt over the the things that happened under their their watch and i thought yeah i thought that was an important role for the filmmakers to highlight i thought that was really important you know and then the flip side going back to taking responsibility or, or the cost of inaction is when the administration doesn't work well with the intelligence community and so back to kofor black we were saying he was one of the people who was most fired up and and quite angry at what happened. Well, here's the quote from him after on July 10th, 2001, he had a meeting with Condoleezza Rice in the Bush administration. And he says, quote, you know, it really does piss me off when people call this an intelligence failure. We knew this was coming. You know, American interests are going to be attacked. Could very well be in the United States. It's serious. It's coming. And um, he said it was sort of like the Twilight Zone, how he felt he fulfilled his responsibility in the role, presenting the evidence and giving the politicians everything they need and the full picture. You know, he thought we made our case. The CIA made our case for taking action. And he just says nothing happened. He felt like he was in the Twilight Zone. So that's another form of, of blame or guilt, right, of I did everything I could do and this still happened, you know. Yeah. That's heavy. One, one of the interesting aspects of this that I, I think is you know pretty prevalent early on in the series and then gets heavy later is and and Gina is the one that brings this up and about how you know she doesn't have a husband anymore and she blames it because of her her job and her lack of being able to be there be present because of everything that she gave to her job and I think that's a something that's well conveyed in the stories you know we visited early on in these first two books with mitch wanting to get out uh, wanting to start a new life with his wife anna and then we'll further touch on it later with consent to kill yeah consent to kill and, and him wanting really to get out and then he can't and then you know later on when he's with claudia you know it's just it, it, these these people that are in these situations and you look at kennedy too right her her marriage deteriorated. She and being a mom too. Yeah, and she even mentions a couple times through the series about how how it's been a struggle to be a to be a mother. So it it was interesting to see that you know I mean I guess obviously Vince and Kyle do their research. They know that this is sort of what these people go through. But for her to admit that on camera was intense to see. So, on to our second topic, which is a big one. <laughs> yeah. Torture. And, again, we're not here to analyze the history, right, or the angles. We are here to review a film that was about, in their own words, hearing from the directors of this, this time period, which a lot of people would say is a, a black eye for the CIA. So, how did you think this was handled in the film and how the different directors uh, presented their case or their perspective you know, I, I thought it was interesting how, you know, there wasn't a clear consensus between the directors at all about 
whether or not this was good or not. This might have been the most dividing, the point of contention dividing the directors along a spectrum, you know, where you could clearly see they were all torn on the ethics, what was right, what was wrong, what should have been done. And it was interesting what one of them said in, in terms of if you don't see a difference between enhanced interrogation and torture, then we can't like there, there is there's, it's a, the conversation is a non-starter. And then obviously George Tennant, who this is his enhanced interrogation as well as Jose, like that's his baby, right? They're the ones who really brought this, you know, hired the, the, the psychologist, the psychologist firm to, yeah. to, to do this. And, you know, advise the president to give the go ahead. I would assume. I think that to me, what was interesting is the argument about actionable intelligence and mm-hmm. the fact that the report Feinstein's report tries to argue against that yet that's the one commonality that even the people who were against torture I think uh, Morel he says that you know torture might not have been the greatest thing but then he's there to defend that we got actionable intelligence out of it so like yes you know, even President Obama goes on and gives a speech saying that we did some things that were wrong. We tortured people. Or some folks, as you know, the famous line was, we tortured, <laughs> we tortured some, some folks. folks. But I th- I think that whether or not you think it was wrong or not, it saved lives. Yeah. And I, th- I think that case was made by Tenet the strongest. And it's still, it's still questioned, right? But um, Tenet made the strongest case of, look... We got the information. We can. We were able to connect it to a courier who eventually led us to, you know, Abbottabad in Pakistan. But here's an interesting perspective on it from Michael Hayden, who once again I thought was very reasonable in how he approached these questions. He said, "Quote: Let's have a CIA director being interviewed here now after a second wave of attacks, and you get to ask him the question. Look, the Department of Justice said it was legal." Yet you refuse to do it. How do you feel about your decision now? And so let's not pretend that this is the force of light and the force of darkness. These are two damn ugly decisions. I feel like Hayden is is getting at something there of, and I remember that this was so important when the green light was given for these enhanced interrogation, the Department of Justice and the Attorney General had a memo authorizing these techniques. And so I thought that was interesting from Hayden to say, look, the White House is giving us the green light. And Michael Hayden is saying, what if you were the one who said, no, we are not going to do it and refuse the CIA in doing it? And a second wave of attacks did come. How are you going to answer that question of the attorney general approved it, the president signed off on it, and you still said no, letting these second wave attacks happen? You'd be a fool to not move on it and get, like you said, the actionable intelligence that could have prevented and did indeed prevent second wave of attacks. I thought that he was interesting in how he proposed that. You know, it essentially comes down to this question or this hypothetical situation where uh, I believe two of the directors posed a very similar situation where if you knew there was a dirty bomb or a nuclear bomb in New York City or or Washington, D.C., and you knew that this guy knew where it was, Where what would you do to get the information? 
you know, you, you, Mike, you are in charge of finding out where that dirty bomb is. You know, do the ends justify the means, right? Whatever it takes. There's no limits. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think yes. Like the, I'm going to find out. I want to save millions of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's think about this, right? That's what we laud rap for doing in these books, right? Whatever it takes. And it's so interesting to hear from the real people, at least the leaders, not the operatives themselves, but the real leaders who are authorizing that. And it's like, I don't know if I should be less inclined to cheer for this when it happens with rap in the books right. or more so. Yeah, it makes him more of a hero in my mind that he's able to do that and get the intelligence. But then I'm looking at someone like Panetta with his head down or Hayden trying to tell you how difficult and ugly the, these decisions are to have to make. And I'm like, I don't I don't know. Should our art and our books and our movies be cheering for this as much? Well, yes, because like you said, it stopped that attack and the many, many we don't even hear about. Thank goodness people are doing it. But let's let's look at the other side, right? We have some people who very clearly feel like they, the wrong decisions were made. And yes, hindsight's twenty twenty. but Stansfield Turner, you know, one of the, uh, the old guards, one of the, one of the older, um, DCIs in the, in the movie from the Carter administration actually says, quote, I think it's beneath our dignity. I think it's poor for our reputation in the world. And so like, if you step away from your scenario, which is a really important one, is there is that perspective valid? Because a few others like Morell and Brennan even bring that up. Brennan actually at one point says, I was a senior officer at the time. And he even said he was in the chain of command at the time these enhanced interrogation tactics were approved and he felt uncomfortable about it. He said he had concerns and he expressed those concerns. He thought they would come back to haunt us. He thought the CIA and the individuals involved shouldn't be lowering their standards, you know, to levels that will he thought one day would haunt them. And he said, he's he said, I never told anybody, quote, we shouldn't be doing this, right? Yeah, because then they cut to Tenet, and Tenet's like, no, he, he never, never told said me that. that. Tenet's like when I was in charge and he was working for me, he never he never said we shouldn't do this. He didn't care. And so then he backtracks, and Brennan's like, well, I never said it out loud. He's <laughs> like, I had some conversations with colleagues, and I was thinking. In my mind, this is not a good idea. It, but you, yeah, you could tell that Brendan kind of wanted to say, I was against this from the beginning, but he didn't speak up. He says, if I was in that situation and the president asked me tomorrow, should I wa waterboard a terrorist? I would say, Mr. President, sorry. I do not believe that it is in our best interest as a country, as an institution of the CIA, and we would need to find other ways to get that intelligence. But come on, do you really think in your situation that's that's a valid opinion? We need to find other ways to get the intelligence? I don't know. It's something to say it like in an interview for a movie, but it's life or death and it's millions, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of people's lives on the line for a situation. Yeah. I, I doubt that he would be saying that same phrase. Maybe. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, Jose Rodriguez brought this up. It was the fog of war. He said that a bunch of times. He didn't backtrack and say he regrets the decisions that were made because it led to intelligence that stopped the tax. But he does say it was the fog of war. Looking back, you can't judge it by today. You know, you weren't in it. Yeah, it's 
this is this is war. It's not a conventional war, but it's war. And Tenet stands by it. He said, you can judge us. We made those decisions for good and valid reasons. And all I would be able to say is we, we sat where we sat. We decided what we did. We understood the implications. And, you know, I guess to back him up, he, they prevented a second wave. Right. I thought it was interesting what Michael Hayden said at the end. You know, he says that in if the future president wants to waterboard, wants to do torture, he better bring his own bucket to do it himself because the agency's not going to do it again. It's it, So he's not saying that he's against it. He's just saying that the agency's gotten too much shit for doing the president's dirty work. Yep. And, you know, this was a big, big black eye, and the, the CIA got made to be... They were sort of the scapegoat. They're not going to do it again. What, so what you what you mentioned there and what Michael Hayden brought up is really important in topic three on drones. We see another divide on these directors of central intelligence over the use of drone, not only the use of drone warfare, but but the divide is over whether or not it's appropriate to have a civilian agency with civilian leadership pulling the trigger, right? Or the ones from their aircraft launching the weapons. And so the question is asked by George Tennant, and he says it's still a question that needs to be asked and answered today. He asks, do you want the civilian head of an intelligence organization firing a weapon outside the chain of military command? And furthermore, firing that weapon from the skies, and in the case that's brought up, against an, uh, a U.S. citizen. And so I thought that was a really important question that Tenet posed should still be addressed and answered today. You, I mean, literally, they're being the judge, juror, and executioner. Yep. And even they're involved in the first killing of an American who has not, who wasn't tried or anything since the Civil War. That was interesting. You know, that dude was a bad dude, obviously. But I just thought that, that was an interesting stat. The fact that he's the first American, yeah. at least documented American, I guess, right. uh, that is killed without any sort of trial or anything. al Laki, Yeah, that was an interesting decision the film set up of. He was radicalized. He, he went to the Middle East and he was working with ISIS. But did we have the right, if he was an American citizen... Well, did did, uh, did the CIA have the right to make the decision to shoot the drone to kill him? Does the Constitution and the protections of it, the right to trial and jury, apply even in an age of radical terrorism? It's the slippery slope argument to say, no, it, his constitutional rights no longer apply because he was radicalized. Yeah, exactly. But, exactly. At, you know, and I want to agree with that, but I see the slippery slope of, well, what's the next thing you're going to take away constitutional rights for? Today, it's radicalization and, you know... Maybe we define that looser down the road, right? Like, yeah. what if that is a slippery slope to loosely use that word to define people of a certain political belief? You know, that's not as extreme as terrorism, you know, or fundamentalism. Or just speaking against, you know, the opposing party. I thought it was interesting also how, you know, the the paramilitary activity of the CIA is greater than it's ever been. And, but yet... It, multiple times in the movie does it does it state that the CIA denies any sort of existence of its drone warfare even though these directors are talking about it <laughs> like it's also I, I thought this was a very interesting quote how Hayden brought this up how you know obviously this drone warfare was started under Bush 
and uh, Obama ran against it. It was a heavy talking point in his, um, you know, run up to the, in his campaign uh, in 2008. Yet he killed more people using drones than Bush ever did. Hayden says the national security looks much different inside the Oval than it does inside a hotel room in Iowa, referencing like the campaign trail. You know, when you're in that position, no matter what party you're in, no matter what your uh, what helped you get elected to office, uh, using these drones is is to address national security is, is something that has continued to grow and grow and, and become essentially what our CIA is doing right now. How do you feel about that, Mike? Yeah, it's it's hard because they've you know they've done so much good and look at the things we see rap doing and we cheer for and we want. We want to be behind, and the real life people who who are playing that role, you know, I I thank them endlessly for for what they're doing. But at the same time, it did resonate me. It did resonate with me the point of the CIA needs to get back to providing the intelligence as a way to give the decision makers, the policymakers, and the military personnel what they need to carry out the mission. So I I kind of thought that was a salient point that I'm going to think about a lot more of. Should they become more of a paramilitary organization and keep up the the development of a paramilitary structure? Or should, over the years, they get back to their roots of providing the intelligence to the proper channels to be the ones to then make the calls? One of the, You mentioned how the drones look different on the campaign trail with that quote of they look different in Iowa than when you're in the Oval Office. There's one other way to think about drones is how different killing someone looks like on the battlefield, how we see rap doing it with the nitty gritty on the ground, face to face, you have the skills versus, you know, now we have sometimes 19 year old kids sitting in front of a computer screen in a trailer in New Mexico, right? And they're the ones with their finger on a trigger. And it's like, what are the ethics there of having the uh, this distant perspective this bird's eye view of who uh, you're killing like we hear you know rap is like an instrument of death and we cheer for him because you know death to the bad guys but what if that instrument of death is just a piece of technology controlled with a joystick like does that change the game and and so michael hayden even says when you can stare at a target unblinkingly for hours if not days then use a weapon against that target that has a 14-pound warhead in it with an accuracy measured in inches, this actually makes more warfare more precise, and that should be a good thing. I mean, if you think about that, it's precision. We can limit the civilian or collateral damage because of the technology, yet at the same time, Hayden then says, now the dark side. The dark side is the ease with which the decision can be made. The political decision-making machine just looking at photos, it's easier to kill. Then if you know you have to risk the life of an operative to go hand-to-hand or close combat with this person. And so this technology is a blessing because hopefully we can precision strike, limit the civilian casualties. But at the same time, you can very easily pull that trigger many, many, many more times. Is that always a good thing? I don't know. Right. It's interesting how that's that's the way we've gone. And not not so much trying to capture these people... And, and gain intelligence, but more so just we have this ability to take them out. Let's yep. do it. You know, the, the film even mentions briefly, I think it's Panetta, and he's 
like we said, he's very emotional and deep about it when he's reflecting. And they even they even show this interesting scene of Panetta being a Catholic. They have footage of him in a church praying. Right. And so you could see he very much has this reflective sense about him, the spiritual sense of the weight of decisions he's made. And he talks about how some of the drone strikes he's operated have – there was one at a wedding. And he said, the guy was so bad, we had to hit the wedding, knowing full well that children were in there. And then another one where he says – we we got bad intelligence. Yes, we got the guy, but our intelligence didn't include there were two hostages inside the building. And so maybe not that your intelligence is not good, but what if it's not complete? And it's so much easier now with a drone to pull the trigger and make that decision. One of the interesting points that was brought up for, for sort of both drones and, and torture, and, and I believe it's it's definitely been brought up in, in the books before, but this idea of people making decisions struggling with the action of making that decision either before or after. And that sort of shows this, this human element behind people. And one of the directors, I believe it was Hayden says like, if you, we want people like that. If, if you, they weren't like that, then, you know, that's a problem, right? You know, if you, you have this emotionless person who just wants to kill, you know, they get some sort of, or or they get some sort of satisfaction out of killing. Rat maybe gets some satisfaction out of out of killing certain people, but for the most part, it's 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 motivated by justice. Your heart's in the right place. For most for most of his people, it's not addictive. Obviously, he has grudges against certain people that he's going to do certain things, but in most of the cases, it yeah. is a means to an end to get. He doesn't like get pleasure out of like. No, and we talked about in the third option how very often he goes out of his way when he can protect innocence in a situation and it doesn't jeopardize yes. the mission. Yes. He'll do that. Mitch is not a psychopath, you know. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. It Thinking about rap and what how he operates, right, brings us to the last topic. And this is like the conclusion of the film. It's making this point of you can't kill your way out of this. It's not an endless – it's not an endless cycle of violence. They even have, yeah, they even have this quote where um, Tenet starts off by saying, I think we get ourselves into a frenzy, believing that killing is the only answer to a problem. And the truth is, it's not. And then you have three, four different uh, directors in the film. They all use the exact same quote. Michael Hayden says, this is not an issue we can kill ourselves out of. Michael Morell says, you cannot kill your way out of this. John Deutsch said, you cannot kill your way out. And George Tenet says, you cannot kill your way out of this. That's a mistake. It's much more complicated. I thought this was the best thing that connected this film to the to the books, because this is something that obviously has been brought up in multiple novels and is thought about. We, we we probably haven't discussed it yet, but we will be discussing this more as a topic in, in these novels with Mitch and with, you know, Irene. So, yeah, I agree. That's going to come up big in the books. And John Brennan, actually, he said something also towards the end that made me think of rap. He was somebody who was questioning, is the CIA becoming too much of the paramilitary stuff? And does it have to get back to its roots of collecting the intelligence and the secrets and so he says, I do not believe the remedy to terrorism is only using the pointed end of the spear, kicking down the doors, taking action against the terrorist organizations. 
But that's what we love seeing rap do, you know, kicking in doors, taking guys out, extracting information from them. And so how does what this movie is setting up? It's a cycle of violence and all of the directors on both ends of the spectrum. Look, we had Michael Morell, we had Hayden, Tenet, all saying, and Brennan, you can't kill your way out of this. From both the strongest and most direct of the people in the film to some of the more what some might call softer uh, DCIs, they're all in the end saying, you can't simply kill your way out of this. How do you feel about that? Because I I don't know. I kind of want to see Rap kill his way out of this all the time. <laughs> I think I think fictionally that's what we love about these novels because and I definitely think that if Rap was in this situation in our world he would disagree heavily. But I think that's why in the novels we have characters like a Stansfield and like Kennedy to give a different perspective and to sort of I guess rein Mitch in a little bit. Even even though they, I guess they would try to control them, they always can't. But I think that, you know, like, let's look at Stansfield. So right? what would Stansfield say to, you can't kill your way out of this? How Like, he runs the CIA. Does he buy into that philosophy? I think he would say no. Like, you can't all the time. But if you could, then you, you should do it. But if you can't, then, you know, we have these, we have different plans. We have, we have different policies, visions. We have, you know, inner workings and stuff to, to get out of situations um, when we can't use that option. Yeah. Uh, I think Kennedy's a little bit different than Stansfield. Obviously, she plays heavily on that. But I think that she's definitely more calculating and would try to, I don't want to say think of a different option first, but think of a a secondary option at the same time be prepared be prepared always have yes killing is is going to be an option but we also have to have another option i think the whole rap kennedy stansfield kind of trio that we love to this whole you can't kill your way out of this conclusion would say well most of the time you can and most of the time <laughs> i'm going to but they would also yeah, and we haven't met Stan Hurley we yet. He would, he would argue the yeah. same exact thing. <laughs> Even more so. I'm fucking doing it. <laughs> Forget anybody who says different. But uh, but yeah. that, but that I think they would also say, so they would say, when you can, right, it's effective and we're going to do it. When you can't, and those moments do come up, we can at least have the right people in the right places on our side. And we can have the vision and the planning to to be ready for that. We can have, you know, an insurance policy. And for Stansfield, that's these files and all this history that he keeps on everybody he's ever met. He leaves no stone unturned. And Kennedy has those. Now. And Kennedy has that now and she learned from him. And then I feel like Kennedy also has this other edge of she's so smart and creative and she can anticipate like the political ends of where things are going to go. So she can anticipate how to manipulate the manipulators and so I feel yeah. like you can't kill your way out of this, but most of the time you can. At least Stansfield and Kennedy are prepared enough to lead the organization to have the backup plan. If you can't, we have a we have a means for that too. You know. Yep. Yep. But would you argue that do these directors actually believe that that you can't kill your way out, or is this or is this something that they're just saying to the film? I think most of them agree with that conclusion. 
I think they all do. I think they all just had to grapple with what it looked like in real time during their leadership. And that's where they try to defend or um, backtrack and, and, and explain what they did and why. So I think they feel that way philosophically, but they also know when you got to lead, you got to lead. And, you know, philosophies go out the window when that's the case and people's lives are at stake. Right. So what do you think? What, how, would you, how would you finally rate this film? And what do you advise for listeners? Should they go see it? Yeah, so I'd probably give it somewhere in the middle, the mid-sevens out of ten. The things I liked about it were the candidness of the directors and actually you know, hearing from them. Obviously, and it, it wasn't all the same thing. They weren't saying the same thing. It wasn't some sort of scripted... You know, we saw big differences between how different directors work and, and what how they saw a direction of, of the agency. I think that the filmmakers they had a point they wanted to get across. I thought they did a decent job of trying to give, let the CIA tell its perspective while also, you know, bringing up the other perspective. You know, there's a different version of this movie that we could see that is sort of a wholly negative of the CIA and their practices. I don't think we're ever going to get like a fully objective version of, of this movie um, without some sort of, you know, loaded questions or or agenda but yeah you know i i enjoyed it it was it was intense yeah i would recommend it to people i agree i think it was a a documentary i learned a lot from and while you can't achieve pure objectivity in how you approach these subjects by letting the spy masters tell their story in their own words i thought that was effective in removing some of the biases of the filmmakers so that they didn't play as much of a role as I could see in other documentaries. So for that, I'd recommend it, but I I, I would go a little lower on my rating, probably somewhere around, you know, I'm, I'm pretty harsh on these things, probably somewhere around a six, six and a half. I, six, I've, okay. IMDb's rating was like a seven, three. Yeah, I've seen a lot of spy, do- better spy documentaries, better um, military documentaries that I think are just more engaging you know, were compelling in their storytelling. But again, for what this is achieving, uh, what this, what the aims are of this, it's really great. Uh, I definitely recommend this to fans of the books and Mitch Rapp because these are the real life Thomas Stansfields and Irene Kennedy's. And this is probably the closest an audience is going to get through a digital media format to hearing, seeing, and getting to know the real life Stansfields and Kennedy's out there. Yeah, I feel like I I know more about the inner workings of the CIA from people like Kyle Mills and Vince Flynn than I have from anything else. Yep. <laughs> you know, like this is how I envision the CIA to work. And, you know, some things were corroborated, obviously, in this thing. Yep. But, you know, a lot of things can't be corroborated. Yeah, so. okay. All right, so that is our review of, you know, Spy Masters, CIA in the Crosshairs. Uh, so what are we covering up next time, Mike, and the next time we gather in this podcast. Yeah, I just finished listening to the audiobook, George Goodell's Lethal Agent, his retelling, his telling of Lethal Agent. Listening to it again. Yep. And so we are going to, in the month of August, cover Lethal Agent, and we'll be doing part one and part two, which is our summary of the book and review of the book early on in the month. And then later in the month, we have some very special bonus content uh, for you. 
that is going to wrap up Lethal Agent and also bring us closer to the release of the next Mitch Rap book, Total Power, on September 15th. We are very excited for that and definitely planning a couple of special things here on the podcast for the release of Total Power. Yes, very excited for the new book. Uh, please, as always, subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at MitchRabPod.com or using our Twitter handle, at MitchRabPod. Also, don't forget, for less than the price of a novel a month, you can help us keep the show running and make a monthly donation to the Prostate Cancer Foundation. So become a patron at patreon.com slash MitchRapPod. And again, if you'd like to help out and support the show and get cool MitchRapPod swag, that's patreon.com slash MitchRapPod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we're just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.